Before I start this episode of the podcast, I wanted to tell you about HelloFresh. I'm sure you've heard about it um, already, but I actually tried it and I love it. HelloFresh is a meal delivery subscription service. Whether you're cooking for yourself or your household, they have flexible plans to match your lifestyle. Sell meal options are vegetarian, kid-friendly, and low-calorie meals. Each week, you'll receive easy-to-understand step-by-step recipes with fresh, pre-measured ingredients and nutritional information, and you'll have delicious dinners in no time. If you need to cancel, change meal options, or skip a week, it's not a problem with HelloFresh. Subscribing to HelloFresh is actually less expensive than buying the ingredients at the grocery store. The ingredients are from the farm and right to your door, so they are really fresh. Recipes are super convenient. It takes anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes for a full meal. And with my meals, that included a side salad, a protein like chicken or pork, and a side like sweet potatoes or couscous. It's great because dinner is always planned, simple and delicious, making meal planning less stressful. Uh, Meals range in flavor and cuisine, so you don't get bored. My husband is kind of a picky eater. He likes his usual steak, potatoes, chicken, rice, kind of bland, nothing fancy meals. But he actually liked most of the meals I made with HelloFresh. I recently made seasoned shrimp and roasted potatoes with feta salad. Another meal was calorie smart, Greek inspired pork chops with lemony roasted potatoes and feta snap peas. And I never thought to cook snap peas in a fry pan and warm them up. I've always just eaten them raw, but they were delicious. Um, Another recipe, lentil stew, which I never thought I would like. And what was the other one? Oh, there was uh, chicken. It was a sticky barbecue chicken tenders with sweet chili glaze. Um, It came with a spring salad and roasted sweet potatoes. They were so easy to make and so delicious, and I'm definitely going to be making them on my own. Um, You can receive your first box free when you purchase three boxes. Link is in the description. Happy cooking! I'm not sure why, but this story has always intrigued me. It was the first case where someone was found guilty way before there was a trial. And it started with sometimes untrue media coverage. Roscoe was a silent film actor. His stage name was Fatty because of his large body type. I think Fatty is a completely inappropriate name, so I will call him Roscoe. Roscoe was born on March the 24th, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas in the United States. 
His mother was Mary, and his father was William. Both parents had slim builds, and when Roscoe was born weighing 13 pounds, his father thought Mary was having an affair. The birth was traumatic for Mary and resulted in chronic health problems that eventually contributed to her death 11 years later. Roscoe had eight siblings. When Roscoe was almost two years old, his family moved to Santa Ana, California. He first performed on stage when he was eight years old and he would continue performing until his mother's death in 1898, when he was 11 years old. His father always treated him badly, and now he was refusing to support Roscoe. So Roscoe got work doing odd jobs in a hotel. He liked singing while he worked, and one day a professional singer heard him and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show. The audience would judge the acts by clapping and cheering. I didn't think that this was an actual thing, but if the act was bad, they would get pulled off the stage with a shepherd's hook. I just thought that that was like a comedic thing, that it wasn't actually real. Roscoe sang and danced and did some clowning around, but he didn't impress the audience. He saw the hook coming from the side of the stage and he somersaulted into the or orchestra pit. The audience went wild and cheered. Roscoe won the competition and that began his career, career in entertainment. He would travel and perform with a theater group, singing and dancing and doing slapstick. In one of the tours, he went to China and Japan. On August the 6th, 1908, Roscoe married Minta. People said they made a strange couple. Minta was short and petite. Roscoe was five foot eight and weighed 300 pounds, which Today is not considered a lot, but it was a lot in those days. He began his film career, career in a company um, in July in 1909 when he appeared in a movie called Ben's Kid. He appeared sporadically in the company's movies until 1913. Then he briefly moved to Universal Pictures and became a star in Keystone Cops comedies. Although his large size was part of his comedic appeal, Roscoe was self-conscious about his weight and refused to and he refused to use it to get cheap laughs like getting stuck in a doorway or getting stuck in a chair. Roscoe was a talented singer, a well-known opera singer Enrico Caruso heard Roscoe sing. Enrico urged Roscoe to give up his nonsense, give up the nonsense you do for a living. With training, you could become the second greatest singer in the world. Roscoe's comedies were described as being lively and fast paced. 
Roscoe was fond of the pie in the face routine, a comedy cliche that has come to symbolize the silent film era. Comedy, era comedy. <laughs> the earliest known pie in the face film was in June 1913, A Noise from the Deep, starring Roscoe. In 1914, Paramount Pictures made an offer with Roscoe and his on-screen co-star, Mabel. The offer was unheard of in those days. $1,000 a day, plus 25% of all profits, and complete artistic control to make movies. That is one big deal. The movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, Paramount offered Roscoe a three-year, $3 million contract, which is equivalent to $58 million in today's money. In 1916, Roscoe was experiencing serious health problems. An infection developed on his leg and became so severe that the doctors considered amputation. Roscoe was able to keep his leg, but he was prescribed morphine to help with the pain. He would later be accused of being addicted to it. Morphine was a commonly used painkiller in those days. Following his recovery, Roscoe starred in his own film or started his own film company that produced some of the best short film pictures of the silent era. Roscoe transferred his controlling interest to his friend and co-star Buster Keaton in 1918 when Roscoe accepted Paramount's $3 million offer. Roscoe didn't like his screen nickname, Fatty. It was also a nickname that he had since elementary school. Fans also called Roscoe names that I can't repeat. They were just very inconsiderate and I can't um, believe that a fan would call somebody these horrible things. Roscoe discouraged anyone from addressing him as Fatty off screen. And when they did, he usually responded with, I've got a name, you know. On September 5th, 1921, Roscoe took a break from his hectic film schedule. He was recently suffered second degree burns to both butt cheeks from an onset accident. Ouch. Roscoe and two friends drove to San Francisco and checked into three rooms at St. Francis Hotel. Roscoe and his friend would share room 1219. His other friend would have room 1221. And room 1220 was the designated party room. Several women were invited to the suite. During the party, a 30-year-old aspiring actress named Virginia was found seriously ill in room 1219. 
She was examined by the hotel doctor who said that her symptoms were mostly caused by intoxication and he administered morphine. Virginia was taken to the hospital two days later. Virginia was born on July 7, 1895 in Chicago, Illinois. Her mother was Mabel and sometimes Mabel worked as a chorus girl. Mabel was a single mother. When Virginia was 11, Mabel passed away and Virginia went to live with her grandmother. At age 14, the beautiful brunette began posing for local artists and fashion designers. When Virginia was 16, she moved to San Francisco, California. She was a natural beauty with big eyes, short wavy dark brown hair and strong facial features. She made a name for herself both as a model and a dress designer. She apparently made $4,000 a year, which is about $60,000 in today's money. She posed for a dress designer named Robert, and they soon fell in love, and soon they were engaged. Unfortunately, he was in a streetcar accident and he passed away. After the death of her fiancé, Virginia moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career on the big screen. Virginia wasn't unknown. Many people in Hollywood already knew of her, and she found work among the most brilliant artists of the silent film era, including a very young Rudolph Valentino. Virginia even received an award as the best dressed girl in pictures. In 1919, Virginia found love again, this time with a Hollywood director and producer. By 1920, the couple moved in together and were planning to marry. In 1921, Virginia was 30 years old, and although she was still engaged, she told her friends that the relationship started to fizzle out. She was still recognized as a model, but her movie career had paused. Virginia was spending the Labor Day weekend in San Francisco with a couple of friends. She attended a party at the St. Francis Hotel. At some point during the party, she became extremely ill. Roscoe claimed that he found her in pain in his bathroom. At some point, Virginia was moved to room 1227, and Roscoe paid for the room. Three different hotel doctors examined her, and she was administered morphine at least twice. Shortly after one of the morphine injections, she had a catheter injected. Three nurses waited on Virginia and gave her hot towels, enemas, and more catheterizations. Everyone initially assumed she was suffering from too much alcohol and perhaps a kidney infection. 
this is where the rumors started, so it's hard to know exactly what is true. One person said Virginia told him she lost consciousness while in room 1219, Roscoe's room. She was laying beside Roscoe and woke up in pain and couldn't remember anything that happened. Another person later testified that Virginia had been suffering with abdominal pain for six weeks and that and another person said that Virginia had been very anxious for her fiance not to learn about the party that she attended. Many of the rumors were that Roscoe had rough rough sex with Virginia with or without her consent. One of the hotel doctors checked on Virginia on September 8th and that uh, he noticed that her pain had grown much worse and her abdomen was very swollen and he arranged to have her taken to the hospital only a few blocks away. She had this for days and the hotel was or the hospital was only a few blocks away. By the end of the evening, her condition had deteriorated. Um, And supposedly, it was thought that she couldn't survive a surgery. On September 9th, 1921, Virginia passed away. She was 30 years old. Later that day, an autopsy was performed by a doctor who was the Dean of Medicine at Stanford University. He was assisted by the hotel doctor who brought Virginia to the hospital. And there was also a nurse. They did not see evidence of sexual assault, but they uh, did see some bruises on her right arm and on her thighs. The bladder was pinkish red. It was unusually small. It was inflamed, and it had a small blood clot. She suffered from cystitis, a bladder inflammation. Um, When she started drinking at the party and became ill, her bladder ruptured, and an infection started. Various theories have been flown around on how the rupture happened. Um and how uh, other rumors were how wild the party was, whether Virginia was pregnant, whether Roscoe and Virginia were together consensually or not. Um, There was a rumor that Roscoe accidentally kneed Virginia in the abdomen when they were in the party room, or that Roscoe was laying on top of Virginia and that his weight ruptured her bladder. Doctors said that to rupture the bladder, it would have taken quite a lot of force. Roscoe checked out of St. Francis Hotel on September 6th, generously covering everyone's expenses, and he was unaware of the rumors that were spreading about him and Virginia. Back in Hollywood, Roscoe's new film, Gasoline Gus, had just opened successfully, and at the same time, he learned of Virginia's death. 
he was shocked at hearing what happened to Virginia, and he volunteered to return to San Francisco. Paramount Pictures panicked at the possible repercussions of the weekend. Thinking that it was a sex and party scandal, they hired attorneys to represent Roscoe. From the start, the newspapers were filled with lurid headlines and graphic false details supplied by the friend Virginia went to the party with. Newspapers around the country were painting the picture of the virtuous Virginia at the hands of the lust-crazed Roscoe. Everything from Roscoe's past was raked up, including a false story that he had been at an orgy party in Massachusetts in 1917. And news stories claimed that he had killed Virginia because she rebuffed his advances. They also claimed that he killed her because his immense weight pressed down on her too hard during sex and newspapers described it as strange and unnatural sex. Soon, churches and women's groups were crusading against the lustful Roscoe. In Hartford, Connecticut, a group of angry angry women ripped down a screen in a theater showing a Roscoe comedy. In Wyoming, a group of men opened fire in a movie house where another Roscoe film was being shown. Thanks to the newspapers, Roscoe had been found guilty in the public's eye before he was charged with anything. Angry and increasingly boisterous, the public was calling for Hollywood to clean up its act. Roscoe's films were pulled from general release. Roscoe had been placed on suspension by Paramount Pictures for invoking the morals clause in his contract. A San Fernando, or sorry, a San Francisco district attorney hoped this case would be his ticket to the governor's office. At the coroner's inquest on September 12th, the district attorney demanded that Roscoe be charged with murder. The district attorney knew that most of what had been printed in the newspaper were lies, but since his vow to prosecute the movie star to the fullest extent of the law had already been featured in the press, he proceeded with the case. Over the next few days, Roscoe was held in jail without bail and a special grand jury voted to indict the actor on a manslaughter charge. It was their belief that Roscoe had used some force that led to Virginia's death. On September 28th, a judge ruled that the defendant could not be charged with manslaughter, but the rape charge was dismissed. Roscoe was released and returned to Los Angeles. He was accompanied by his estranged wife, Minta, who had offered moral supports. 
The trial began on November 14, 1921, with Roscoe taking the stand and denying any wrongdoing. The defense introduced evidence of Virginia's past medical um, problems, including chronic cystitis and her um, recurrent bouts of abdominal pain. The key witness, the friend of Virginia's, who attended the party and who was speaking to the press, never took the stand, something the defense pointed out several times to the jury. After a lot of conflicting testimony um, and 43 hours of deliberation, the jury remained deadlocked. One juror was adamant that Roscoe was guilty until hell freezes over. The judge declared a mistrial. The district attorney was not willing to give up and pushed for another trial. At the second trial, they did not have Roscoe testify, but instead read his prior testimony into the record. This made Roscoe look cold and uncaring about Virginia's death, and it made the wrong impression on the jury. Roscoe's attorney was so overly confident that he didn't even make a closing statement. After many hours of deliberating, the jury was deadlocked again, and although this time it was rumored that they almost voted in favor of conviction. Roscoe had not been convicted, but he was paying the price for his crime. The studio studio was no longer paying for for lawyer fees. In order to pay, Roscoe was forced to sell his home in Los Angeles, along with his luxury vehicles. The district attorney took Roscoe to trial a third time. This time, Roscoe took the stand and patiently asked, answered questions for three hours. Excuse me, wait, baby. The defense introduced evidence about Virginia's past. The prosecution's intimidation of witnesses and the prosecution's still wasn't able to get Virginia's friend to testify. Come on, go, go, go. Um, This time, the jury adjourned for only five minutes and returned with a verdict of acquittal and a written apology. Uh, the written apology says, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe. We feel... A grave injustice has been done to him, and there was not the slightest proof to connect him in any way with the commission of any crime. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe is entirely innocent and free of all blame. Roscoe may have been acquitted, but the damage was done, and he was not given—he was not forgiven by the public or Hollywood. 
Paramount cancelled his contract and his unreleased films were thrown away, costing the studio over $4 million. Roscoe's career was finished. Years later, it was discovered that a studio executive made a a mysterious payment to the district attorney on November 14, 1921. It was assumed to be a possible bribe to control the case's outcome, although not in Roscoe's favor. Some have, um, sorry, some have theorized that the studio executive, eager to regain control over Roscoe, had masterminded the St. Francis Hotel party. Roscoe's friend Fred mysteriously vanished for a time during the party. The situation was set up to make Roscoe look bad, and it got way out of control. Only friends, um, sorry, gosh, my kitty's distracting me, my apologies. Only a few friends, like Buster Keaton, remains by Roscoe's side. Buster Keaton suggested that Roscoe change his name to get work in movies. Years later, Roscoe changed his name to William, and he was able to get work as a comedy director. Friends helped him the best that they could, but the next few years were difficult ones. He tried stage and theater group work, like when he first started in the business. He opened a club and a hotel, but both closed down during the Depression in the 1930s. He married and divorced a second time, and then found happiness with his third wife, an actress named Addie. In 1931, Roscoe appeared in a magazine article begging to be allowed to return to the movies. He was offered a contract, but pressure from several women's groups caused the deal to fall through. Roscoe was given a contract by a small New York studio to star in a 1932 short film. The comeback was so successful that a contract was offered to Roscoe to make five more short films. Roscoe was then offered a role in a feature film with Warner Brothers. Unfortunately, Roscoe died of heart failure on July 29, 1933, the night after completing his last short film. He struggled with alcoholism. He was 46 years old. For his contributions to the film industry in 1960, Roscoe was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame that was 27 years after his death. Roscoe was cremated. His ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Even in death, Roscoe could not find peace. The slanderous stories about him still exist today. And if you look up his name, something about it will come up. And he continues to be perceived as the lustful rapist.
At the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, a lonely stone marks a lonely stone marks the grave of Virginia, and the site is said to be home to her ghost. Most newspapers painted Virginia as an innocent victim of Roscoe's love or lust crazed as dances. Others made Virginia look like she was the sex-crazed party girl. Basically, Virginia was an easy target. It was not surprising to hear that her spirit still lingers behind. Visitors who come to the um, Hollywood Forever Ceremony, or Hollywood Forever Cemetery, goodness, I can't talk. Um, they've reported hearing ghostly voice that weeps and cries out and it's near Virginia's grave. It is believed by many to be her ghost, still attached to this world and still in anguish over her promising career, which was like her life cut short before it could really begin. And I'm sorry to say that is it for season three of this podcast. So I'm going to be taking a break for a couple of months um, with researching and things um, like that. Although I love true crime, it can get to be a little much and I just need to take a break. Um, I know I don't really talk about personal things, but I'm also going through a health issue. I have a family member who's also going through a health issue. So, um, going to take a couple of months to, yeah, get that everything all sorted and hopefully, um, get a, a season four started in the spring. Um, so please follow me on meta or like facebook whatever it's called now um facebook page for any updates on stories that i've covered um i put post pictures um things that i might have missed in these episodes i'll add them to the facebook page and yeah i would love to know uh, what kind of stories you would like to hear what kind of cases um you would like to hear me um, research. So yeah, definitely let me know. Um, and yes, as this year has new year has started, I just wanted to give a really big thank you. I started this podcast thinking I would be the only one listening to it, and I'm so glad that I have listeners. Um, and yes, I really appreciate it very much. So thank you.